You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year. We'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you. We're at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Um, I'm Pastor David, associate pastor, by the way. Uh, I can help you find a class if you're not in a class yet for fellowship, encouragement, and, and study of God's Word. I am a very poor fan. I'm a Texas Longhorn fan, but I'm a fair weather fan. If Texas has a perfect season going on early on, 5-0 uh, and oh, or 6-1 and one maybe even, I'm engaged, I'm excited, I'm committed, but if Texas loses a couple, I'm not as committed. I may have the next game turned on, but I'll have the volume turned down, I'm doing something else. I'm a Fairweather fan. The quality of my fanmanship is poor. I don't contribute much value to or express much loyalty in Texas Longhorns like I probably should if I'm a true Longhorn. How would you evaluate your churchmanship? Sorry, I don't have a gender-neutral gender word. Churchmanship, your churchship, your, what you do to, uh, ministering to and through the church. How do you evaluate your churchmanship? How important is your churchmanship? Is it just you and Jesus and the church's background noise? Uh, Paul teaches us that there is eternal significance to our churchmanship. And here in chapter 3, he gives some instructions on our churchmanship. Chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We haven't been in the early chapters in about a month or so, so Paul switches metaphors. He was talking about a field. The church is like a field that he planted and Paulus watered. Here it's a different metaphor. It's a building being constructed, and Paul laid the foundation. He went to Corinth. Conversions happened. The church was started, and then he left. He's an itinerant apostle, and he left to build other foundations, lay other foundations. And Apollos came not too long after, spent a year or two pastoring and teaching, and then he left. He's not there anymore. So 
Paul says someone else is building on the foundation. Who is this someone else? Well, the teachers and the leaders uh, of Corinth. We don't know them, probably any of them by name, or maybe only one or two, but apparently it was these leaders and teachers that some of the division was coming, uh, was being expressed in. There was four parties. They had divided into four parties uh, among the Corinthians. But he says in verse 10 at the end, let each one take care how he builds upon it. And he's writing to the whole church. This is an open letter. And so even though this is applying to teachers and pastors, it also applies, I think, to church members, our work, whatever it is. Might be a handshake, hospitality, making coffee, whatever it is, our work is what Paul's talking about here. And the warning Paul gives is take care how you build on the foundation. Be careful about your churchmanship. And there's a few principles. The first one, if you want to write this down, the foundation determines the structure. The foundation determines the structure. Or the floor is the plan. At the end of, each, uh, end of verse 10, he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For, circle that word for, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection between 10 and 11? Watch out how you build the church because Christ is the only precious foundation. We shouldn't sing the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord, and then say, okay, now we can build however we want to. No, the foundation determines the structure. Not only is Jesus the bottom holding it all up, he's also the structure. We're, we're to grow up into him who is the head, Ephesians 4 says. The foundation drives how we build. So that's what, that's what Paul's saying. Be careful how you build because of the foundation. Um, Paul's preaching is clear about Christ. In chapter 1, he said, we preach Christ and him crucified. The foundation of the church is Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, skip down to verse 18 where Paul repeats some principles from chapter 1 and 2. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. He's quoting the Old Testament about the futility of human wisdom. The wisdom of this world looks so impressive, but is eternally dark. And the wisdom of God is packaged as folly to this age. Because of the corruption of this age, it's packaged as folly, but it is eternal wisdom. If you took the top thinkers in the world who are worldly and non-believing, you took all the top uh, thinkers, influencers, philosophers, and you stacked them 50,000 in the stadium, and you told them, confer for a year about truth and the meaning of life. And meanwhile, down the street, there's this rickety old motel, and there's a truck driver, let's say, sitting on the bed. He reaches over. Maybe he's a high school dropout. He reaches over to the bed stand, and he opens the drawer and pulls out a Gideon's Bible. 
And as he turns to some key verses, maybe the Gideons have outlined or the Gospels or one of the epistles, in one minute, under the awakening of the Holy Spirit, that high school dropout will have more wisdom than a whole stadium of thinkers down the street. Paul says, don't get it confused. You can be deceived by appearances. True wisdom isn't what this world embraces. Be careful. The Corinthians were, some of them were hungry to uh, have the appearance, the seem wise by the standards of the world. I understand the temptation. I'd like to be wiser. I, I'd like to be highbrow. I think I'm stuck at midbrow, but uh, I've always wanted to be smarter than I am. Instead of gaining more light, they were actually backing into darkness because they were captivated by worldly wisdom. What's the cure? Verse 18. Any one of you thinks he's wise in this age? That's a problem. Let him become a fool. Literally, let him become a moron in order to become wise. Well, how does that work? Well, to the world, God's wisdom looks moronic. So Paul says, become a moron in the eyes of the world. It doesn't mean literally become a moron. Don't Eschew learning, please. There's value. But he's saying embrace the folly of the cross of God sending his son to suffer. You see, the world, it was folly. A crucified Christ was no Christ at all. That's not winning. That's losing. If we, it, to, to, make, to help you think how ancient people heard things, imagine us singing a song, the old rugged electric chair. That's how it sounded to the world. It's folly. But Paul is very clear in chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, that's one kind of wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, their wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The God, the Son, will become one of his own creation, become one of his own creatures, and wash their feet, and live a perfect life we should have lived. And as he said, I'll give my life as a payment for many, and to go to the cross and the soul crushed and to experience the suffering and the death, and to become our sin on the cross, and then to be buried Talk about defeat and shame and losing. He was raised on the third day and spent those 40 days with his disciples and then sent the Holy Spirit. We get God back because of the blood of Jesus. You talk about snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, snatching life from death, eternal life. And the Bible says the only response to that, it's going to look foolish to the world. It's believing, not blind faith, believing this is God's son, and this is the payment for sin. And if I'm going to have eternal life, I must place my life in him. If I'm going to have hope in this life, in meaningless life, he's the key. He is the son of God. So in your church work, in what you do in church, if you don't consider Christ and think of him who was crucified, his gospel, you may be building on the foundation out of harmony with the foundation. Robert Murray McChaney said, for every look at yourself, look, take 10 looks 
at Jesus. He's he's the slain lamb of God who has overcome. He has overcome. Now, the second, the first, uh, first principle, foundation determines the structure. Secondly, there will be an inspection of your churchmanship. I was nervous having a building inspector come to the house we were selling because, I mean, he looks everywhere, goes up in the attic looking for rotten wood along the eaves. And our house wasn't in the greatest shape. The AC wasn't the greatest. But uh, it turns out I still have an inspection to go. Look at verse 12. Anyone who builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The day will disclose it. That's the day of the Lord. Judgment, an ultimate, the ultimate evaluation of the church isn't the members, it's the Lord. That's whose evaluation awaits. You know, we, we live in a consumer society, and so we can bring that mentality into the church easily, right? And we can strike this pose where we're evaluating church life. We're doing this. And we're saying, I like that. I don't like that. That blesses me. That doesn't do anything for me. And ultimately, maybe I need to go down to a church that's more like me, thinks more like me, and maybe uh, I need to go where people agree more with me. It's almost like, it can almost seem like Jesus is not Lord. Someone else is operating as Lord. You've felt that in your life? But the Bible says, no, he is Lord, and we must all, all of us, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And what we did as a church, or what you've done, the work you've done in churches, will all their true value and worth will be revealed. You notice the materials there in verse 12? The main thing about the materials I found is the first three seem to be fire-resistant, and the last three are highly flammable. And those are our works. Whatever works magnify Christ and model Christ crucified. Whatever works exalt him and are patterned after him and are driven by the gospel, those works will be fireproof. And they will be gold, precious stone. Whatever works distract from Christ and the gospel, detract from Christ and the gospel, aren't built according to our model, the foundation, Christ who was crucified. Those don't fit the foundation they will be highly flammable. We've got to make sure our teaching and our attitudes and our actions fit the foundation. You can't just pick any works you want to pick. Some Christians want to, this is my ministry, and it may be something that doesn't really drive the gospel or doesn't really express biblical commands of mercy or whatever. They're just sort of a facade, and they feel better. I uh, knew a guy passed out little wooden crosses he made by the hundreds. He went from church to church, never belonged to the church, and never shared the gospel as far as I know, but he just felt better giving out crosses. It just made him feel like he had a mission. Whether God was asking for it or not, here it is. God, here's my mission. 
There's a temptation to cater to ourselves as members in our works. There's a temptation to serve other kingdoms through the church. Church sure is convenient. We could use it for some good. A lady came up to me many years ago after a sermon and said, we need revival. Amen. We need revival in the churches because the church is the only hope for saving America. I said, I agree with that. I went home and I thought about it. What does she mean saving America? Does she mean spiritually or does she mean sustaining America? Sustaining American principles is a wonderful thing, but the church doesn't serve that. That's far beneath the kingdom of God. The Bible says that Christ in Revelation will crush underfoot all loyalties. He's not coming with an American flag. And the church is, what kind of kingdom do we think we're part of here? This is an all-demanding kingdom. Jesus said, if you don't hate your mother and father, sister and brother, you cannot follow me. So things that are really good are not the purview of the church. The gospel, worship of Christ, the commands of Scripture are our purview. We have to be careful how we craft our priorities and our works because if we don't, we'll end up in this really awkward, ill-fitting outhouse that doesn't even fit the foundation, and it'll be highly flammable. Oh, we might be glad about it. Some good things happen. It completely misses the mark of the gospel and the Savior. Well, it says here that there's going to be consequences on how we build. Look at verse 14. If a work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. We don't know what that is. It's just the certainty there will be a reward. And by the way, rewards are by grace. They're not deserved. And, and it could just simply be greater joy and faithfulness. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The word fire is a metaphor for judgment. He says, as through fire. Fire tests metals, judgment tests works. And so he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. There will be a testing, just like fire tests metal. If our building and our working and our teaching and ministry survives, if some of that work survives, there will be rewards. If not, it will be burned. It will be a loss of reward and opportunity and blessing. But he or she won't be lost because of the blood of Christ. Abe Lemons said, you know what they call a person who graduates last in his class at medical school? Call him a doctor. That's the grace of God here. But I think Paul is being, he's being hypothetical. He's being highly simplistic. I highly doubt there are any true believers who have no works that go on. I, I highly doubt. So he's using this almost like economists used to simplify things by giving even numbers, you know, 100,000 or whatever. You say, well, the thief on the cross didn't have many works. I think for the time he was allowed to be alive in the kingdom, those final hours, he was highly fruitful. I think that's a strong possibility, highly fruitful in his confession of Christ. Christ also judges our motives and knows why we do things. Proverbs 24, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Will he not repay man according to his work? 
everything we do ostensibly for Christ, but really more glory comes back to us, could be flammable. I mean, we all, we all have mixed motives, right? I, I struggle with pride. But there's a real possibility of work and striving and words not being eternally for his glory. Remember, uh, remember Martha's meal. She, she threw herself into the kitchen to cook this wonderful meal for Jesus and his disciples and so frustrated that Mary wasn't helping her. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're distracted. You're anxious about many things. Only one thing is needed. I'm a simple savior, I think is what he was saying. And I think that Martha's mill went down in flames in terms of eternal reward. Now, she did a work. Jesus did eat the food. His disciples, you know, Jesus can use works that are done amiss. He can use evil works for his purposes, right? But I think Martha's mill went down in flames because it consumed her for her own glory. And how about Mary's works? What Mary was doing was not flammable. It was fireproof. Jesus said, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Cha-ching, eternal blessing. You see how that works? I don't know about you, but I want to be maximally glorifying God. If you're thinking, I want to get the minimum done to get into heaven, you may not be saved. That's not really saved thinking. Third principle. So the second principle, there will be a there will be an evaluation. Third one is the church is holy. It can, but it can be destroyed. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We're not just a building under construction, we are the temple of God. He doesn't mean temples. He means you all are the temple. There's a place in chapter 6 where our bodies are called temples. This is different. We, not here where we meet, but when we meet, we are God's temple, his dwelling place. Anyone who destroys the temple, God will destroy him. Well, that escalated fast, didn't it? It went from shoddy building materials and no rewards to destroying the church, and then the destroyer being destroyed. Wow. How can someone destroy the church? Paul doesn't tell us. He's issuing a warning for a reason. The context seems to be division, but he also could have in mind worldly thinking or pride. There's a number of things, but the context here seems to be the issue Paul's dealing with here in chapter 3 is division. The main point, I think, is that the local church is holy, so be careful. And the church, the local church can be destroyed, so be careful. Jesus warned in Revelation 2 and 3 that he could, people could destroy the church and lampstand. Their authority to even be a church is removed. We don't know exactly what Paul means here, but be careful. You know, we are the bride of Christ, warts and all. We may look more like Cinderella's stepsisters than we do Cinderella, but we're still the bride of Christ. We're holy, we're the temple. Be careful.
there were these four parties here, ones that followed Apollos, ones that followed Paul, ones that followed Cephas, that is Peter, and the real spiritual party called themselves Christ, the Christ party. Their motto was, you have your opinion, we have Christ. And in verse 20, Paul addresses this again. And again, he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Verse 21, so let no one boast in men. It comes back to the issue of division. Because worldly thinking is futile, why are you boasting in? Why are you seizing teachers to line up behind? These divisions were happening because of worldly wisdom with pride riding a shotgun. And so Paul says these divisions, I think he's saying these divisions have the potential, every division has the potential in it of destruction because they weren't humble about their differences. Here's the cue, the cure for this, verse 21 at the end, for all things are yours, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you're Christ and Christ is God's. Stop grasping for significance. Stop grasping for belonging. Stop grasping for human righteousness. You have it all because you're in Christ. God has everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Christ is God's, he's his son, and we belong to Christ, verse 23, and so we are heirs with Christ. We're the only people on earth who can laugh out loud and say, it's all mine, and maybe not necessarily be evil. It's all ours. Everything that's Christ belongs to us. Blessed are the meek, not the proud, but blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You don't have to grasp what you already have, William Randolph Hearst wanted a piece of art that he'd read about. He was willing to pay any price for it. His agents went out to search and months later came back and said, we discovered you already own it. It's in one of your warehouses. Stop fighting to gain something you already have. The teachers, you don't belong to the teachers, they belong to you. Godly teachers, all levels of competency and ability, but they benefit the church. Stop lining up behind them. What I find is strange here in chapter 3 is nowhere does Paul speak of exactly what each party believed. He didn't give any odds for any of the parties. He even kind of put his party down. Did I ever, did y'all, were y'all baptized in my name? What's going on with this? Paul never explains anywhere in Corinthians the differences between the parties. There had to be differences. Something divided them. But the differences did not amount to a hill of beans. Paul overlooked the differences, and he told them they were worldly because they were letting the differences divide them. They weren't being humble about their differences. No, we have, we're going to have differences. We're going to have we're going to have, people have convictions. Many people I know who have convictions have it not out of pride, but out of conviction. But we have to hold our conviction in perspective like Paul did. Have your convictions, but if they're not essentials, don't jump to division. Keep perspective. Because Jesus is Lord, the church is holy, and the church is not indestructible. The early church had crazy differences. Slaves, freedmen, masters, kosher Jews, 
former pagan Romans, Greeks, highly educated, no educated. They had differences in scruples and in application and traditions. And Paul said, good, the unity you have here is a sign of the power of the gospel. It's a sign that the church is supernatural. It's supernatural. Don't cover up the sign. You know, if you keep moving from church to church because of affinity, if I could just be with people more like me who agree more with me, or maybe even socially or more similar to me, politically maybe, or we can have more exact agreement over the fine point, then I, I'll, be, I'll be happy. But that covers up the sign of the gospel. We would just become another civil civic organization drawn together by affinity. Affinity is fine. But how redeemed are you? Are you redeemed enough to live and minister with differences over the non-essentials? We need to be careful about our churchmanship. You know, unity is not something to, to take lightly. Paul said in Ephesians 4, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All humility. That's hard to get to, you know. It's really hard. I've known people with strong convictions in, in theological circles in Southern Baptist life. I like their conviction, agree with their convictions, but humility seemed to be lacking, and I see the same thing in me. When I was in sixth grade that summer after sixth grade, this would be about 1971, uh, we got to be in the youth group, so we sat in with the youth, and Larry was a teacher, large class, Wednesday night. Larry had these long sobers, remember that, don't remember his last name, and he was a great teacher. He loved the Word of God, and he explained to us, and he let us raise our hands and give our feeble opinions about verses. Didn't need to help us clarify how to interpret the Word of God, and I grew so much, and then toward the end of the summer, Larry was no longer there, and someone came in who wasn't nearly as gifted, and I found out later there was division in the church, and so Wednesday nights were members, our, new, our business meetings, and so Larry began to slip over the business meetings because he had strong convictions about things, and then eventually Larry, his family were gone. Sometimes we have to part ways. Conflict is inevitable. We have, we have conflict. You have conflict in marriage. It's part of what makes you a better human is you're dealing with differences that could drive you crazy, but God's grace allows you to deal with differences. I think the thing we need to realize, there is a cost to conflict. We'll have it. Just make sure you keep the cost in perspective. I like to apply Philippians 2, whenever I can, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which was in Christ Jesus. Then it goes on to say, he humbled himself. He's God, and he humbled himself. How should we treat each other in light of that? Verse, uh, chapter 16, it's interesting, Paul says this about Apollos. Because Apollos is missing. He's only there a year or so, and he's gone. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you 
with the other brothers, but it was not at all in his will to come now. Now, we don't know, but it sounds like Apollos got burned out in Corinth. Paul has to burn out just writing letters to Corinth and hearing reports. Uh, there was a church father named Jerome who reported, we don't know his source, he said that Apollos was appalled at conflict and division and escaped to Crete. Later on he came back, but he ran away. Uh, we've had our own, here at Hayes Hills, 35 years ago, we had our own Apollos moment before I became pastor uh, the pastor who founded the church, who had the vision for the church, Vic, they were worshiping at Dahlstrom, and they had such a broad coalition that they, they had division. They had conflict for about two years. And just a different vision of how the church should look and sound. And finally, Vic got fed up and packed his belongings and moved to Alabama. He's been there ever since. He pastored there. I mean, it was kind of a shock. The members were kind of shocked. I was actually called the supply priest for the church right after he left, and it was a stunned uh, group. And as what would happen, what happened next was some of the stronger opinions in the division went away, and people told me, that, that's a church that has, has conflict. It's had a split. It actually had a meltdown. People were leaving. But when I got here, there were seven families meeting in homes, not even every Sunday, and they wanted just to be the church. The stronger opinions had left. Vic was a man of God. He's the one that had the vision. He's the one that had the vision to ask the rancher for this land. It was given free and clear. We had money in the bank. It looked like a bad place to come, but it was actually a softball. Easy. Only a moron could mess it up, and I almost did. Um, there is a cost to conflict, we will have conflict. You will have convictions. You have to express them. Express them correctly and, and as well as you can. Stand up for what you believe. But just remember always the cost of conflict. Keep it in perspective because it's not just churches that are not indestructible. Pastors are not indestructible either. There's a cost. Be careful. As the book of Hebrews says, let the minister ministry of your pastor, let it be a joy, not a burden. Well, Austin FC, Austin, the soccer team, uh, started the season this year in a really depressing way. The very first game, one of the FC Austin players passed the ball accidentally to the opposing team player, one he had played with in previous teams. And it was right at their goal, the opposing team's goal. Goalkeeper wasn't ready, put it in, won the game. And it's made me think about, Paul says, we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. He uses sometimes good things and good people in wrong ways. Worldly wisdom is a scheme. Uh, pride is a scheme of Satan. And division is also a scheme. There's good division, there's bad division. And what I would appeal to Hayes Hills is, as we minister, keep the cost in perspective Remember the church is holy. It can be destroyed. And don't help the other team. Don't pass it easily. Guard against the things that might cause, at some point, destruction. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for the letter of 1 Corinthians. We thank you for the model of Christ. Father, it's not just the world that sees crucified Christ as moronic. Sometimes in churches, we kind of push aside that model, being completely humble. And you know, Father, pride is a major issue in my life. And as C.S. Lewis said, identifying pride is the first step, but I'm, I'm still on the first step. Father, I pray that you will continue to make me more completely humble. Thank you for the church we have, for the convictions members have. We thank you for the differences we have that may even we might scratch our heads over and we get frustrated about the Father, we thank you. We give you thanks for the differences among us. We pray for even more differences in other ways that some way or another the world will see this is a supernatural body drawn together by the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Help us, Father, to confront each other and to be in proper and healthy conflict according to your word. Help us, Father, to this to be very fruitful. Bring fruit from it, Father. We pray for protection from division that would be harmful. We pray, Father, for your help in our church. We pray we'll be in your hands. We'll use us mightily. Speak to us, Father, as elders. We struggle and are not inerrant. We err. We need your correction, Father. We need, as we disagree, we need your continual help to come to be able to lead this church in a worthy way of Christ. We know we're going to face an evaluation. We don't totally fear it because your grace will help us, but we do want to walk circumspectly, cautiously. So we pray for your intervention and your correction. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.